Well, good morning, Gospel City Church. How y'all doing today? Good? Anyone fired up to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Okay, let's go. That's good. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And as you've already heard, it's the beginning of Holy Week. Always a great week to set our affections on Jesus Christ. Uh, we've been observing sort of the narrative of Jesus on his way to the cross. And today we're going to continue. The title of today's message is The Injustice at the Trial. And so open to Matthew chapter 27, and I'm going to start by reading the text. If I could give you a big idea that we're going to go after today, it would be this. Jesus was accused and condemned so that I could be pardoned and set free. Jesus was accused and condemned so that I could be pardoned and set free. And so I want you to get your eyes on a copy of God's word this morning. And let's just allow this wonderful narrative, this historical narrative to speak to us this morning as we enter into worship together, okay? Now hear the word of the Lord, chapter 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, to not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Verse 20, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that the riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray together. Father, we come and Lord, I am uh, just evidently aware this morning of our desperate need for you. Evidently aware this morning of the world's lostness and hopelessness apart from the person of Jesus Christ. But Lord, I'm also aware and becoming more and more aware of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the story of, of Christ under the weight of our sin 
moving in humility and in faithfulness toward the cross and dying in our place for our sins is the most beautiful truism that we could ever tell of. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that in a room full of people who have come here to hear about Christ, Spirit, I pray that the gospel would be as beautiful as it could possibly be. I pray that the glory of the gospel would shine in this place as we look at this piece of the narrative of Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. So Spirit, would you open our hearts? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you remind us and would you set a tone for us as we walk into Holy Week? And would you have your way in us today and throughout the rest of this week? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now we've been in a series called Table to Tomb at Gospel City Church the last couple weeks. And we've been looking at the last 24 hours of the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, It started uh, with the Passover dinner with his disciples. So the meal took place the evening before the day of Passover. It'd be like you having Christmas Eve dinner with your family before Christmas day came. And at that At that meal, Jesus took bread and he took a cup of wine and he blessed it and he used it as symbolism for his body and his blood that was going to be scourged, that was going to be beaten, that was going to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. So the brutality of the crucifixion, the brutality that we'll even see in the trials today, you should remember it every single time you eat the bread and you drink the cup of communion. But from the table that evening, the evening before Passover, Jesus retreated to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he took his burdens to God, and as he cast his cares upon the Lord, we see the humanity of Jesus under the crushing weight of our sin. And he prayed, if it be possible, would you let this cup of wrath pass from me? But Jesus, understand, he was far more concerned about his father's will than he was with his own comfort. Jesus was far more concerned with bringing glory to his father who was in heaven than he was about getting out from underneath the pressure that was upon him. And so in humble humility, he yielded to God and he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And then shortly after this, things begin to escalate rather quickly. Have you ever had a long day where you just had anxiety on your shoulders, stress on your shoulders? Maybe it was making you depressed and you just thought, I would love to lay down and go to sleep and wake up to the new morning mercies tomorrow. Have you ever had a day like that? Have you ever had a day like that and then you laid down on the pillow at night only to be woken up very shortly after and you realize it's going to be a long night? Jesus, Jesus, he was feeling all of those types of things. After casting his cares on God in the garden, wishing that he could just go to sleep, wake up the next morning to new morning mercies, Jesus has one of the longest nights known to man. There was no sleep for Jesus the night after he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. And at the point where we're picking up in the text today, in, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 11, by this point, there had already been five different trial encounters that happened all through the night. It's fascinating, and I want to talk through them with you before we get to the text today. Uh, 
scholars and researchers believe like probably around midnight for the, the eight hours and the wee early morning uh, hours, Jesus is being dragged from trial encounter to trial encounter, being falsely accused, being beaten, being spit upon. And at daybreak, he ends up where our text is today. So let me just run through the trials. After being arrested in the garden, the first trial encounter, and I say encounter because these were highly illegal trials. There was nothing legal about them. They were more in mob fashion, dragging Jesus from person to person. So they first take him to Annas, who was the former high priest, and they bring to him exaggerated charges about Jesus's teaching and his doctrine and some problems with his disciples, which of course were not true. And Jesus in humility, defends his character a little bit to Annas. And as he speaks up to Annas, who was the former high priest, who had no business trying Jesus, Jesus begins to speak and they slap Jesus across the face for speaking to the former high priest the way that he did. Then they drag him to the second trial with Caiaphas, who was the current high priest, and they bring to him religious charges of blasphemy that this man is claiming to be the son of God. They bore false testimony about him, but the testimonies were not lying up. And so Caiaphas puts Jesus under oath and asks him if he is the Christ, the son of the blessed. Here's what Jesus responded in Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 through 65. Jesus said to him, it is as you said, I am. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus says, it is as you say, I am the Son of the Blessed. I am the one that you've longed for, but you might be in the power of judge now, but I will be in the power, in the seat of the judge soon. And the high priest Caiaphas tears his garments. He shouts, blasphemy, and they begin to spit on Jesus. They begin to slap Jesus. They begin to punch Jesus in the face. Some time goes by. The third trial is upon us. It's the Sanhedrin confirming their religious verdict with Caiaphas again, same story. They want him to confess that he is the Messiah. But Jesus answers that if I tell you this, you will not believe me, nor will you let me go, but soon I will be in the place of judgment and they begin to plot his death. But understand that the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, this is no new story, they were so self-righteous and pharisaical that they didn't want to deal with Jesus the way that they would have dealt with others who were accused of blasphemy. They didn't want to cast him down and throw stones at him and kill him by stoning. And so they decide, okay, we won't condemn him. We don't have enough evidence to condemn him. He's actually an innocent man. We just hate him a whole lot. And so we'll take him to a civil court. We'll put him under the judgment of the Roman empire. And Jesus is fulfilling prophecy left and right. He wouldn't be cast down in stone, but the son of man would be raised and lifted up. And this is how the Romans execute people. So they drag him from Caiaphas's house to Pontius Pilate at the Praetorium. And understand the self-righteousness of the Sanhedrin is at an all-time high at this point. They were unwilling. They, they wouldn't enter in to the Praetorium so that they wouldn't defile themselves for the Passover. 
So they'd already executed. You weren't allowed to have trials at night, not on the evening of Passover. Could you condemn someone? They've already run uh, this condemning truth, uh, these, these condemning charges against an innocent Jesus all night long. And then they take him to Pilate, but they won't step in so that they won't defile themselves on the day of Passover. So they go to Pontius Pilate and the religious leaders were giving the appearance of godliness while their actions were far from it. And the Jews turned to him. They turned Jesus into Pontius Pilate for insurrection, for not paying his taxes, for stirring up trouble against Caesar and the Roman Empire. And Jesus said things similarly that he told Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate found him not guilty, but rather than freeing Jesus... He sends him to Herod Antipas to appease the Jews for his own reputation and because Galileans weren't his issue. So Pilate's like, I don't want to deal with this Jesus guy. I've questioned him. Uh, he certainly seems to be innocent to me. They just have a big problem with him. I don't even want to deal with the Jews. This man's a Galilean. I'll send him to Herod Antipas. And that leads us to the fifth trial. And Pilate wanted nothing to do with Jesus, but Herod was pumped about the opportunity to question Jesus. He was waiting for him. It must have been around 4 or 5 a.m., imagine that, as they drag Jesus to Herod Antipas, the bloody, tired, dirty Jesus, to the courts of evil Herod. And Luke chapter 23, verses 8 and 9 says this, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So Herod was in this for himself. Oh, Jesus, he can do a magic trick for me. He can do something for me. He can perform a miracle for me. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. So young parents in the room, any young parents, uh, I talked about a long day and you just want a night's sleep and you lay your head on the pillow that night and your baby wakes up and you run into the room and you get your baby, you swaddle your baby, you lay your baby back down, you go back to your bed to lie down for some good sleep, only to go back into your baby's room, right? And you, you've lived that and sleep deprivation is a real thing. And Jesus at this point has reached the point where he is embracing the father's will for him. He gives no answer to Herod. He doesn't cast his pearls before swine. And sometimes as young parents, we finally realize in the middle of the night, it's better for me not to put up a fight against this. I'm just going to hold my child and rock my child and find the blessing in being able to rock my child all night long. Jesus, in his humanity, longing to get out from this horrible situation, finally embraces, this is the Father's will for me, and so I'll just take the accusations and the ridicule and I will walk along as they lead me to my death. So Herod was certainly not happy with this as Jesus doesn't answer him. And so they vehemently accuse him, they defame him, they mock him, they beat him, and they clothed him in a gorgeous robe of mockery. And then at daybreak of Passover... They lead Jesus back to Pontius Pilate for the sixth trial where our text picks up for us today. Now, if you love Jesus, the events of that night should make you a bit angry. Your justice meter should be like tweaking out right now. Because all of this was so 
unjust on a day called Passover where the people of God celebrate the freedom given by a gracious God. They held God's even greater Passover lamb in their custody. And that night through each encounter with high priests and with rulers and with Pharisees and with Pilate, people who are called to uphold the law, people who are called to uphold the law of God and the Old Testament, they falsely accused Jesus. They mocked him and spit upon him. They dragged him from person to person to person. They maligned his perfect, untainted reputation. They accused him of blasphemy for humbly stating who he really was. And they dressed him in his bloody, dirty, weary body in royal robes, of mockery, every trial highly illegal that night because it was riddled with their own will and their own desires for Jesus versus following the law. And this was all just the beginning of the unjust accusations and punishment as Jesus became the just and the justifier for the ones who would have faith in him. Now, I want to observe three characters in this sixth trial today, I have three observations that I'll give to you and then we'll close with three applications from the text. So we're gonna look at Pontius Pilate, we're gonna look at the crowd, and we're gonna look at Barabbas. I'll give them to you one at a time. Let's first look at observation number one. Pontius Pilate was a coward of a judge. Pontius Pilate was a coward of a judge. Look in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 27. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So just understand at this point, here's Jesus spit dried in his beard, blood dripping from his face, dressed in immodest clothing as his body is dirty and bruised and scraped and cut. Looks nothing like a king. Pontius Pilate questions him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Pontius Pilate was not used to people standing before him, not giving a reason for him to let them go. Pontius Pilate undoubtedly had stood before many condemned and wicked people who would cause a ruckus and an uproar about why Pontius Pilate should let them go. I didn't do what they said. I didn't do any of those things. I'm innocent. Let me go. And they were indeed guilty. Here's Jesus, innocent Jesus, who's never done anything wrong. Not one accusation or charge is right. Pontius Pilate knows it, can see it, and yet Jesus stays silent, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a lamb who was silent before his shears. Jesus opened not his mouth. He's fulfilling prophecy, but in humility, he had those whom he would save in his mind's eye as he stood before Pilate, as he was accused and as he was condemned, and Pilate was greatly amazed at the humility of Christ. Now in verse 15, Pilate's like, I can't condemn this guy to death. I need to release this guy. But he didn't want to upset the Jewish leaders because if the Jewish leaders 
rioted, which had happened before under Pontius Pilate, then Caesar was going to get involved. And if Caesar got involved, Pontius Pilate might lose his life. And so I'm in this for my own political gain. I'm in this for my own ladder of success. I don't want to cause a riot and an uproar. I don't want Caesar to come down on me. I don't want to execute justice. So I'll think of another way. And so there was a custom to release for the crowd one prisoner from whom they wanted, and they came up with a notorious criminal who was tried, who was condemned for insurrection and murder on, on death row, Barabbas. And understand, I want you to just see the grace of God in, in this as Pilate continues to try to release Jesus, but he's unwilling to execute justice. He, he comes up with this plan. I'll give them this murder. Surely they'll pick Jesus over Barabbas. And then look at verse 19. As he presents Barabbas for Jesus, while he's sitting in the seat of judgment, which is probably not a place where your wife interrupts you very often, but Pilate's wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much from him today in a dream. So I don't know if this is the grace of God. I don't know what's going on, but you know how you've thought, if you've ever thought about something for a long time and you can't sleep at night and you just keep thinking about that thing and it's keeping you up and and it's weighing on your mind. Surely Pilate and his wife had thought about this man, Jesus, who rode into town so many days earlier and he's performing miracles and he stirred up uh, some things at the temple by turning over the tables. Who is this man? And the woman says, Pilate's already found him innocent a couple times. And now his wife is saying, he's a righteous man and he's tormenting me in my thoughts. You should have nothing to do with him. That should have been more confirmation for Pontius Pilate to execute justice for Jesus and to release him. But as he goes back, he hears the crowd shouting to crucify Jesus. Go down to verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that the riot was beginning, he took water And washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. So many instances where Pilate could have simply released Jesus after a long night. He found him innocent in the first trial, innocent in the second trial. He's amazed at the humility of Jesus. He tries to come up with a plan to give Barabbas instead of Jesus. His wife warns him to have nothing to do with this righteous man. And so Pilate, rather than saying, you guys are crazy, I'm going to release Jesus. You're going to leave Jesus alone. This is my ruling. He washes his hands of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, observation number two that I want to see from the text is this. The crowd was fickle in their love for Jesus. The crowd was fickle in their love for Jesus. This word fickle means changing frequently, especially as regards to one's loyalties, interests, or affection. You do not want to have fickle faith as a follower of Christ, or you don't want to say that you're a follower of Christ and have fickle faith. You want your love for Jesus to be sure, and you want your faith in Jesus to be secure. But the faith of the people that morning was less than convictional. It was fickle and easily persuaded. Now, Pastor Brent made reference to today being Palm Sunday, but I just want to show you how fickle these people's faith was in the one whom they celebrated just several days before. 
So if I go to Matthew chapter 21, you can turn there. I'll read it from my Bible. But this is the day just shortly before at the beginning of the week when Jesus rode into town on a donkey. Okay, and listen to what it says. Matthew chapter 21, verse 2. Jesus said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. So that's from Zechariah 9 verse 9, prophesied so many years before Jesus ever came that the, the king, the Lord, the Messiah would ride into town on a donkey. It's right in front of them. It's right in front of the Jewish leaders, the Messiah that they've been waiting for, prophecy being fulfilled, the Old Testament being fulfilled right before their eyes. In verse 6 of chapter 21, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Of Galilee. So they were celebrating Jesus as he rode into town. There was much jubilation, much rejoicing as Jesus, the great teacher, rode into town on a donkey. Now go back to Matthew 27, and I want you to look at verse 20 and 21 of the text. Now the chief priests and the elders so while Pilate's distracted by his wife telling him to have nothing to do with this righteous man, in verse 20, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. No doubt that in this moment, there were people finally gathering. Something's going on at Pilate's People are waking up, it's daybreak of Passover. Let's go see what's going on. People who were there at the beginning of the week shouting Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord are now being persuaded by their high priests and by their religious leaders that they need to destroy Jesus. Yo, he's gonna give us an option, pick Barabbas. Pick Barabbas. Yeah, he's a bad guy, but Jesus is way worse. Yeah, yeah, Barabbas has did some bad things, but Jesus is gonna lead us astray. Jesus is a bad person. We need to contemn Jesus to death. You know what? Barabbas actually is on death row and has a cross already waiting for him. Let's have Jesus take his place. Shout crucify him. Shout crucify Jesus in the place of Barabbas. You can just imagine the stirring of the crowd. And as Pilate comes back, the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release? And they said, Barabbas. But Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. The crowd was fickle in their love for Jesus. They, they loved the idea of Jesus. They loved the teaching of Jesus. They loved the benefits of Jesus's healing. But those 
who were unpersuaded that he is Jesus Christ, the Messiah that they had longed for, they were persuaded that day to shout crucify him rather than blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now observation number three from the text is this, Barabbas was woefully guilty, yet he went free. Barabbas was woefully guilty, yet he went free. Jump back to verse 15 in Matthew chapter 27. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. So you got to ask, what's up with that? What's up with that custom? The releasing of a prisoner by the people's choice was paying homage to their ancestors' liberation from Egypt. So just as God passed over his people in slavery to the Egyptians which led to their freedom, on Passover there was a chance to show that same mercy as a captive went free. But understand this, nobody was thinking about Barabbas that day. No one would have chosen Barabbas. He was on death row to be crucified. He was an insurrectionist against Caesar. He was a genuinely bad person who had done a lot of bad things and had been tried lawfully in the courts and put on death row. He wouldn't have even been a thought for this custom and this releasing, except Pilate thought for sure this would be a way to release innocent Jesus. Look at verse 21 and 23 again. The crowd chooses Barabbas. They shout, crucify him who is Jesus. Pilate says, why? What evil has this man done? And they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Jump down to verse 25 and 26. And all the peoples answered, his blood be on us and our children. That just shows the fickle faith and the self-righteousness of the, the, the high priests and the people. You don't have to deal with him, Pilate. Let his blood be on us. Let his blood be on our hands, and it certainly has been. The people of Israel are still waiting for their Messiah, surrounded by enemies. God has allowed Gentiles to come. In verse 26, then... Pilate released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Such a turn of events in this short moment. Pilate saying Jesus is innocent. Pilate getting a plan. I can release the insurrectionist Barabbas in Jesus' place. Surely they'll pick Jesus. Pilate gets distracted not to deal with this righteous man. The crowd stirs everyone up and persuades them to choose Barabbas. They choose Barabbas and Jesus is now on his way to the cross on the day called Passover where a lamb was often, crucif or a lamb was often sacrificed as a substitute for sins. Now I wanna pick out three applications from the text today because you've heard the story of Jesus. Uh, you've heard the story of his trials, but I want you to lean in and try to understand what is being painted for us in the word of God. So the first application I'll give to the, you is this. You cannot wash your hands of the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot wash your hands of the person of Jesus Christ. Pilate was an, a historically brutal governor. Herod, who was pretty wicked himself, said that Pilate was inflexible 
as a governor. He wasn't very willing to offer justice or grace in a lot of situations, but clearly he had a sense of justice because he could not find Jesus guilty, nor was he willing to condemn this man to death. You just see scripture and God giving us all the hoops and the ways that Jesus could have been released, and yet he was sent for a purpose. So Pilate chose a Jewish custom for absolving himself from his inability to exercise justice. He didn't find Jesus guilty. He was unwilling to set Jesus free. So he washes his hands of Jesus as if to say, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm, 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 I'm separating myself from the man Jesus. Do what you want with him. But we know this from scripture. You cannot wash your hands of the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 14, 10 through 22 says this, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. As Pilate stood before Jesus as judge, he was thinking he was done with him at this point. But the next time Pilate stood before Jesus, Jesus would be the judge. And Pilate washes his hands of Jesus, but all of those who have not been washed by the precious blood of the lamb will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. You cannot wash your hands of the person of Jesus Christ. He will have the final say. Jesus will have the final say. And so I think many in our culture, many in this world love the idea of Jesus, but many try to wash their hands of him. Man, uh, that's really good that you follow Jesus, but, but that's not for me. Or I, I don't need religion in my life, but man, I am glad it works for you. Or, or you might see something in this Jesus stuff, but I don't. Or Jesus seemed like an intriguing person, but there's a lot of roads that lead to God. And I'm just trying to find mine. And they try to set Jesus on the shelf as they wash their hands of him and have nothing to do with him. They don't need the person of Jesus only for that which benefits them. So just as Jesus answered Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? And with the words, Jesus said, you have said so. Who do you say that Jesus is? Every person in this room must answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? He's either a great teacher. Some have said he's a lunatic. Some have called him a liar. And yet historically, so many things have lined up and scripture just proves them. Or Jesus is truly the son of God who can save you from your sins. And that leads to the second application of the text today. You must be fully persuaded of the deity of Jesus Christ. You must be fully persuaded of the deity of Jesus Christ. This is a crucial challenge that every disciple of Jesus be a lifelong learner of Jesus. You need to be a theologian and and, and think deeply about God. Don't just run to the scriptures to fit your bad day. Run to the scriptures and think deeply, dig deeply so that you might have understanding of the things of God. You got to get in more than just this Sunday morning gathering so that your faith can be stretched, so that your um, 
discipleship can grow so that you can have greater understanding so that you can know how to study your Bible. You need to search the scriptures to understand for yourself who Jesus is and how you can follow him because we do not want to have the fickle faith of the crowd shouting Hosanna one day in jubilation only to be persuaded to shout crucify him a few days later. That is not the kind of faith that we need. When the going gets tough, We need believers to stand firm, stand bold in the truth of who Jesus Christ is, not be persuaded to deny him with our lips. So it proves that you can look the part and your heart can be far from Christ. You can come in and out of the church singing the songs, praying the prayers, celebrating Jesus, but if you have not come to know Jesus as Lord, then you do not know Jesus if you have not come to know Jesus as king of the universe, ruler of everything, he gets everything in your life. If you've not come to know him that way, then you do not know Jesus and you need to surrender. Luke chapter nine, verse 23, Jesus said this. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Who are those who would die to themselves? Who, who are those that would go against the persuasion of the crowds? Who wouldn't simply dismiss Jesus by washing their hands of Jesus? Those who are fully persuaded that he is the son of God. Jesus is not some activist. Jesus is not some great teacher. Jesus is not just a Jewish rabbi. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He is Lord. The Greek word is kurios. It ties him to Yahweh in the New Testament. And unless you believe that he is God incarnate, that he is God who came to earth to live among us, to die in our place, unless you know it, unless you see it, unless you believe it, you might have the fickle faith of the crowd. Colossians chapter one says it so well. Colossians one verse 15 says this of Jesus, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything, He might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You must be fully convinced that the fullness of the God of glory was pleased to dwell in the perfect man, Jesus Christ who was drugged from trial to trial to trial all night long for you, who was accused for you, who was spit upon for you, who was beaten for you, who was put on death row for you, who died on a cross in your place for your sins so that you could have life. We must be fully convinced of the deity of Jesus Christ. And then finally, application number three, you are Barabbas, and your replacement for execution was Jesus Christ. You are Barabbas, and your replacement for execution was Jesus Christ. There is sheer genius 
in Matthew's spirit-inspired account written to the Jews about their Messiah. The specific details that Matthew gives paint this mind-blowing picture of the hope for humanity. And there's so much irony in Pilate offering up Barabbas beside Jesus. The irony of Pilate washing his hands and presenting the crowd with the option of Barabbas for Jesus is that Pilate gave us a picture of the gospel when he freed the guilty for the guiltless. Barabbas was an insurrectionist, but Jesus followed the law and rendered to Caesar what was his. Barabbas was a murderer, but Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Barabbas hurt people, and Jesus healed people. Barabbas stole from people, but Jesus multiplied the gifts of people. Barabbas was accused and imprisoned and found guilty, but Jesus was acquitted of every single charge. Barabbas 100% deserved his death and execution on a cross, but Jesus deserved to be worshiped. Jesus deserved to be magnified. Jesus deserved to be bowed down to and exalted. And Barabbas had a cross ready and waiting for him, but Jesus took his cross that day and Barabbas went free. The guilty went free and the guiltless took his place. Isn't that incredible? The details of the gospel on display before us in the scriptures. But I want you to think about something. Barabbas was the only man in history, the only man in history where Jesus physically took his place on his literal cross of wood that was meant for his deserved execution because of his sinful life and nature. But spiritually speaking, the death of Jesus on the cross was so much more than a substitute for Barabbas that day. It was a substitutionary death for you. When Jesus crawled on that cross, when Jesus was condemned by Pilate to be scourged and crucified, He had set the joy before him. He would endure the cross. And you, every person in this room, because of your sin, because of your nature that is just ingrained in you when you're born into this broken world, you deserve to die, but through the death of Jesus, you can live. You are imprisoned to sin and to death, but by Christ's cross, your shackles are loosed. You are tried and condemned, but Jesus took your sentence You are murderous and wicked and sinful at heart, but Jesus became all of it and gave you his perfection because you are guilty, but the guiltless took your place. Jesus died on a cross in your place as a substitute for your sins so that every person, so that you might repent of your sin and believe on Jesus Christ who is the son of the living God and so that you might turn and worship him for all of eternity because of his substitutionary sacrifice. This is what Christ has done for you. This is a picture of the gospel in Matthew chapter 27. And I just wanna close with Psalm chapter two. Psalm chapter two is a psalm that I just wanna read the first six verses or so, it says this, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord 
and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's really a great depiction written so many years before this moment in Matthew chapter 27 of exactly what's taking place. The kings of the earth, the rulers set themselves up. They take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. We're gonna accuse him. We're gonna beat him. We're gonna charge him falsely. But look at verse four of Psalm chapter two, or just listen. He who sits in the heavens laughs and holds them in derision. Then he, the Lord, will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And it's just as Jesus said. It is as you have said, but soon I will be in the place of judgment and I will be judging you. And unless you have repented and believed and followed Jesus Christ and made him Lord of your life, you'll be turned away from his presence forever. And so I hope friends and guests who are here today, that you see the beauty of the gospel on display, that an innocent God man took your place, that an innocent God man was accused wrongfully so that you could have life. And I'm just aware that so many are searching this world for hope. So many have, have endured and faced trauma and, and the anti-gospel in your homes. Maybe you've brought burdens and problems out into the open and you've been condemned by Christians. Maybe you've been turned away by those who claim to follow Christ. Understand that the people in this narrative we're doing the same thing. The religious leaders who were supposed to wrap their arms around the people and love the people, they were more concerned with their own status and their own pride that when they finally got the Messiah before them, they condemned him to death and they crucified him. But Jesus, he was in control the whole time. He knew exactly what was gonna happen and he willingly crawled upon the cross for you. And so my hope for you today is whether you've wrestled with, if you've wrestled with religion or you've wrestled with Jesus, understand the beauty of the gospel is that the guiltless wants to take your place and cover you with his love and his righteousness and his grace. And it's by the spirit of God that he opens our hearts so that we could respond and say, Abba, Father, this is from our Father. Jesus is my King. Jesus is Lord of my life. So I want you to bow your heads for a moment. And if you're here today and you have questions about how to respond to the gospel, we would love to talk to you afterwards. I'd encourage you even now, cry out to Jesus. Tell Jesus you want him to be King of your life. Let's pray together and we'll respond. Lord, we come we exalt you as high king of heaven. And Lord, as we step into Holy Week, we just pray that you would overwhelm us with the otherness and the beauty of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. 
There is no greater love than this. So Lord, would you remind us gently today that we don't deserve where we sit. We don't deserve what we have. We don't deserve where we stand today. But you are Lord and you are good and you have called us out of the darkness of this world into your marvelous light. Lord, would you continue to open hearts? Would you continue to change lives? Would you continue to shower us with your grace? We certainly don't deserve it, but you are good and you are God. In Jesus' name we pray.